Hi, I'm Todd Bolander, and I'm here again with Jerry Caesar, pastor at Gulf Coast Community Church of St. Petersburg, Florida, and this is Sermon Extras. We're here to talk about the recent sermon series that we're now three into. Is that right, Jerry? You have finished three, right. This Sunday will be the fourth. Slaves of Christ. Slaves of Christ. And that is a series in the letter to the Philippians. Yes. Controversial title, too. Yes, as you point out in, I believe it was the third. I believe it was. In the third message that there was a little bit of at least some questions around why the word slave instead of the contemporary translation servant. Right. Um, And if I were to go back to, say, the King James translation, you would see bond servant show up quite a bit. And I want to say the ESV holds on to some of that bond servant from time to time. Mm -hmm. Holds on to that tradition to try to sort of bridge the gap between the English word slave and servant. And although I didn't expect us to start off on that topic, just talk about it for a few minutes. Um, you, You bring up why slaves, and you say that in the Greek it means slave, and that's true, but can you unpack for me some of the why, why then do English translations render it servant so often if you're you're coming along and saying, but in the Greek it means slave, and and an audience member in the first century who heard the Greek word read in this letter would have thought slave. Why is it then so many of our English translations are rendering it servant? That's a good question. I And, and obviously I can't speak to the whys for all of them, but I, I can suggest some possibilities. Uh, on the surface, of course, there's the possibility that the, the term slave is just too offensive, so we, we find something that's more appealing. Uh, because for us, we, we, we don't like being called slaves. I mean, that, that's the point. Um, now, doulos, it's, maybe it's a, a word that serviced a variety of things. Part of the biblical understanding of slave, servant, when they translated from the Hebrew Old Testament to the New Testament, they had to choose Greek words that were accompanying it. And you've probably heard the expression that every translation is an interpretation. Well, that was equally true when you went from Hebrew to Greek in the, in, in the Septuagint. And so um, it may well be that because you went from, say, a bond servant in the Old Testament, this concept of a servant who was essentially a slave, I mean, there was really no difference this slave who would say, I, I want to become your slave for life. I'm, I don't want my freedom because slavery, both in the Roman world and in the Hebrew world, there were ways that it would come to an end. It wasn't because of the color of your skin that you were this particular uh, category of human being, as was done in the chattel slavery in, in, in our own country's historic past. Um, so you're talking about the practice of ancient slavery, not so much the meaning of the word. Right. So, that, okay. so in the practice of ancient slavery, you had this, this uh, scenario where somebody in, in the Hebrew world would say, I want to become your slave for life, and they would become a bondservant. And so that word, then coming to the new, well, that idea is then carried forward, and people say, well, if, if it's translated as doulos, which was slave, then it must mean this unique kind of slave, this bondservant. Well, it didn't, it didn't. It did at times mean that, but obviously doulos was used for slavery in general. And in the letter to the Philippians, we have to ask two questions, I think, that are relevant to that topic. One, how would the Philippians have heard the word? 
for them, the answer is clearly slave, at least as close as we can get in our modern English word, slave. Uh, secondly, in the, in the key text of Philippians, Christ uh, emptied himself, taking on the very nature of a doulos, a slave. So in saying that, I mean, what is the idea that we're picturing of Christ? Did he lower himself to a fairly low level or did he lower himself to the lowest place? And, and becoming obedient, not to death, but to God, even to the point of death, that's the kind of obedience that is, if you will, slavish in its demeanor. It, it's emptying himself of every right. So the way it's used in that central text of the book I see is clearly a direct reference to the very lowest form of slavery that we can think of. That is right into a question I did have for you. So I guess it worked out just great that in the first message, there were several times that you repeated that God became a slave to show us what he was like. And Jesus became a slave. And I kept thinking to myself, I don't remember that part of the Bible. I don't remember the part where Jesus gets locked up in manacles and sold at auction and then becomes someone's house slave whom they boss around but you kept saying it over and over again, like I was supposed to know this as a typical part of the Jesus life narrative. So what is it you meant by Jesus became a slave? Well, one, I'm drawing it from Philippians 2, beginning in verses 6 uh, through six through 8, uh, where we see that, who though he was in the form of God, I'll just loosely quote the verse, but though he was in the form of God, um, he did not, uh, use that ESV uh, translation quality to right. God. Oh, go, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, have this mind. This is Philippians chapter two, verse five, beginning there. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Verse six, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. Verse seven, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. You say slave. Mm hmm being born in the likeness of men. So, Jesus, first, when, when you make the, the comparison uh, between divinity and humanity, in the ancient world, the gods were a class above. People were the slaves of the gods. And, and so even in the—and we'll be looking at this this coming Sunday, but when you look at their imagery of what the world looked like, Caesar and— uh, the gods were on one plane, the rest of humanity was on another plane, and for the most part under the crushing arm of the military of Rome to keep the peace. And that's pictured in their, their artwork and their jewelry of the time, common jewelry. Uh, so, so Christ, though he was in the form of God, he was actually God. He, he came down into that lower world in their way of thinking. He became a, a, a person who took the nature not of a king who was godlike, but rather, in their thinking, but rather of uh, the very lowest of human forms, as a servant, uh, somebody under the, the crushing arm of Roman oppression. Uh, and, of course, we have in Mark 10, 45, uh, the, the, the statement where Christ came to, uh, not to be served, but to serve uh, and give himself as a ransom for many. Uh, so in Christ becoming obedient to God to the point of death. He was a servant of God. And one of the things I talked about, I believe it was in that same message, 
that this terminology has many roots. You had the, the root to the Roman world, which was slave, but it also had the root to the Old Testament, which is, the, as Moses, the slave of God, the servant of God. E- Ezekiel, you see this, the various uh, key characters, David, a servant of God. Well, Christ was a servant of God, but in, in a far greater way than anyone else had ever been, um, because his obedience didn't go to a limit, to a point, it went even to the point of death. His, his obedience was total and complete, like, unlike anybody else. So in that very sense, he, he was, as it were, slavish in his obedience to God as a human being with all the weaknesses and frailties of a human being. When you talk about him taking on the form of a slave, then if I'm hearing you correctly, that I'm supposed to hear a couple of things if I'm a Philippian, if I'm a first century member of the audience or member of that church. And first is to say he somehow, if I'm hearing you right, he somehow moved from the plane of the super beings, Caesars, gods, divine, all that, and moved into the plane where all the rest of us live and not only so that's one level you're saying I should hear that phrase form of a slave right right form of a servant and then the other level is that even though he was on the plane of god he he took on the form of a servant that is someone who does all of what god wishes right in in relationship to his ministry or you mentioned david and moses and ezekiel there Right. Okay. All right. And you talked about that slave ship, that that point that Jesus had condescended, had come down from that position as Paul's controlling narrative. And throughout these first three messages, you've used that phrase, and you explained it in the first—I want to say you explained it in the first message briefly. Remind me again— what is a controlling narrative? Yeah, Paul's master story, his controlling narrative. It's the story by which we live our lives. Um, and in Paul's case, um, it's the story that transformed his life because he, he was living by one story. And we'll, when we get to chapter 3, we'll see this played out a little more, where his, his story was one where pedigree had everything to do with it. He was, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, and we could go on and on. He had... He was everything there was to be in, in, in terms of what it means to be the people of God. And then suddenly everything changed. And what it now means to be the people of God for Paul is to be joined with Christ. And to be joined with Christ is to be joined with him in his death and resurrection, to be joined with him in his suffering as well as his glory. And, and so... For Paul now, the story is, how do I join Christ in his sufferings? And in his obedience to God, which you'll notice right after the Philippians 2, 6 through 11 text, uh, Paul then goes ahead and instructs the Philippians, I believe it's in chapter, or or verse uh, 12 and following right there, where he says, now, you know, uh, not only would you, as you have obeyed, but now all the more continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, you've been obedient, but now in light of Christ's obedience, dive into that obedience all the more. So this obedience of Christ then becomes, in Paul's mind, the controlling narrative for the Philippian life. 
uh, toward the end of that chapter, which is to say, this is now what should control how you live, the story you conform yourself to. Uh, oftentimes we think of, you know, our life story as if it's something that we live out. It's not something that controls us, that we willfully pattern ourselves after, but rather it's this story that just is our life. We kind of passive recipients, but I think in Paul's mind, we should be actively pursuing this Christ-like life, recognizing that because of our baptism, we've been joined with him. And that now every, every aspect of our life has, is connected to this dying and rising in Christ. It's our justification and sanctification. It's all of that tied to that. It's, they're all tied together in this connection to Christ. That's fascinating, the idea that whether I'm conscious of it or not, I have a narrative, or at least this is what I think I hear you saying. Uh, I and, and basically all of us, we have this narrative that we play out in our minds that drives us, motivates us to make the choices we make, to live the way we do. If you had to summarize what you think is a typical American and controlling narrative, and I'm not trying to be cynical, I'm just curious, uh, as opposed to the, I, to live in Christ is to die with Christ, is to hope in that vindication, to, to be confident in that, and so to step forward. Right. Uh, pursuing Jesus, even even to the point of death, what do you think is the typical controlling narrative then? Yeah, and and I I don't know if there is a typical controlling narrative, but there are certainly some closely intertwined controlling narratives, uh, if you will. Um, you cannot worship God or money, uh, Jesus declared, and I th- I think I think we live in a nation that has tried everything it can to worship both God and money, and and I think the results are. Um, despairing. Hmm. Um, it's not been an effective uh, project, if you will. Um, <laughs> so uh, yesterday, as I was in front of an abortion clinic praying, it just dawned on me that this is the effect of uh, a country that has attempted to worship God and mammon at the same time. Um, and you can't do it. And, and so, so there are a number of controlling narratives that are very similar. One might be the idea that, you know, he, and it's said jokingly, but he that dies with the most toys wins. Um, that happiness, joy, that fulfillment uh, come from um, money, uh, the perfect spouse. Um, and and you, could, you could add to that list the perfect career, power. These are the things. And so some people, it's the power element. For others, it's the, the status of who I'm married to. The, uh, some guys go after a trophy wife, which is to say it's all about how the wife makes the, the person feel. And, and, and there are a number of ways. Greed drives so much of what we do, but greed morphs into a variety of, of various other idols that it, you know, that it associates itself with. Sex would be another one. Uh, somehow our, our, the media, the, the movies and so forth, uh, communicate a message to us that happiness is found in, in that perfect loved one that you find. That's what's going to ultimately make you happy. I remember when my kids were little, they came out with something. This is, I think, the late 90s called Curse Free TV. <laughs> it, was, it was kind of funny because it was something you could attach to your TV and it would 
delete out curse words and put in, you know, sort of innocuous terms like, uh, oh, shucks, you know, or, or something of that nature. Uh, at the time, I laughed on two counts. One is if you could attach it to my living room window so that I did not hear the neighbors cussing, it might be more worthwhile there than on my TV. Um, but the other uh, w- was that, you know, that, truthfully, a bad word or two in a movie is probably the least concern that I have in what my children watch or I watch, but rather having a discerning ability to, de- to, to detect the worldview what idols are being promoted, what's, what's being held out there uh, as that thing which will satisfy your soul. Uh, and, and you can't eliminate that with a few curse words deleted. So it sounds like an alternate way to talk about a controlling narrative is the thing that you're convinced will fulfill you as a person. Whatever it is you have been taught or led to believe will make your life as good as it can be. That's your controlling narrative. How, how a person makes his or her life fulfilled would be the, the story that's motivating and driving them their actions and choices. I, I think that's a, a fair description, and, and maybe to cast it in, for, for the believer in a more um, biblical concept, I would say it's, it's the story of what it means to be truly human, to be a human made in the image of God and to live that out. What does that look like? Uh, I think we're born thinking it looks like everything it doesn't look like. It looks like us reaching the top and grasping for the prize that's at the top of the ladder above everybody else. Whereas in the picture we get in Philippians 2, it's quite the opposite of that. It's serving others. It's lowering ourselves. It's humbling ourselves. It's the God becomes a slave uh, narrative that is so contrary uh, to our way of thinking. Uh, Our way of thinking is that God trumps all. He, he does as he pleases, powerfully taking control of everything. But the gospel tells us that he does as he pleases, weakly suffering in order that he might redeem humanity. It's, it's quite contrary to our way of thinking. As you were just talking about controlling narratives, and in particular the ones that seem to be common here in the United States at this time, sort of struck me, what is the thing, because you kept mentioning them as idols also, so it's the thing you're pursuing, the thing you elevate, the thing or concept or idea that you keep in front of your eyes as worth pursuing. Right, right, absolutely. That's helpful, and it's challenging at the same time because at one point you're talking about ambition in the series because that's going to come up, especially uh, interactions in the inside of this community of Jesus followers. Right. There are people— it, it, it comes up in chapter 1, but then it's really brought out in chapter 2 at the beginning. And that one is one of those—I've uh, seen it in— interactions in my life where that's the one that's really subtle. In some cultures, it's overt 
in some places it's overt. Yeah, I'm trying to be the best. I'm trying to be better than everybody. You see this in the business world or something like that. But in in churches, it can come out in subtle sort of ways. Um, so I, I look forward to hearing more about that uh, in upcoming messages, especially as you talk about the relationship between the two ladies mentioned here. You in get this to chapter church. four, yeah, right, right. In your in your second sermon, you talked about prayer, and you actually made the point about it being a work of faith and plowing, like plowing a field, and it takes a long time before you see results. You go home tired and not necessarily uh, having got a lot that you can see done. You You made the point that in the Gospels, and I remember sitting in the service when you said this and just thinking about the juxtaposition, put, putting those two images side by side of the the disciples in the boat as Jesus is sleeping mm-hmm. and the storm is raging and they're crying and praying and begging Jesus to do something. And so they're coming to the one who can do something, and that, that's part of the story. Right, is, right absolutely. Is here's... Who is this man? Well, this man can control nature with just a word, right. whereas every other human who's involved in this incident is helpless. But then to put that beside their experience at the end of the gospel story where Jesus is begging them to pray, more or less, mm-hmm. keeps coming to them and saying, why are you falling asleep? Why aren't you praying? Yeah, they're the ones sleeping now, right? And yeah. they're the ones asleep <laughs> and comfortable and don't see the actual danger Right. So when it's the storm on uh, Lake Galilee, on Sea of Galilee, that's a danger that they see and perceive, and Jesus is not worried about that. Right. Because he has that one under control. Not that he doesn't have the next one under control, the one at the as far as temptation and his death, but the real, the real battle... Yeah, the real danger. Yeah. The real danger is when it comes to not fulfilling God's will and the temptation that's coming and he's basically saying you guys aren't praying you were you were ready to pray and do all sorts of things when it looked like you're going to get swamped in a boat but and so when you drew those stories right alongside and i thought oh man that is that is so common that is i i felt like Oh, yes, there we go. That's my prayer life. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yes. Yeah, mine too. I mean, that's that's the reality of I think for all of us, that's the battle in prayer. And 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 that's one of those things where I was just uh spending some time that week because of a class I'm taking, examining the gospels, reading through Matthew's gospel, um, you know, in one sitting and going back through it and looking at just an outline of the gospel and just spending a lot of time pondering the gospel. And, and, and as I'm doing that, I'm just, I'm, I'm looking at this and I notice those two events and I'm going, wait a second, but those speak to something. They speak, they, they, they turn, they turn on each other a little bit. And it's, it's interesting because if you zoom in and you look at the story in the boat, here's Jesus asleep on a pillow. Um, I don't want to take away from that story by the comparison I make, because that, that is a real picture of how we feel like prayer really works. When we are in desperate need, when everything does feel like it's, you know, going down rapidly in our lives and we are crying out, it often seems like God is asleep. 
And, and so you have the Psalms where, you know, in fact, is it Psalm 44? Why are you awake up? Oh God, you know, why are you sleeping? There's this element of uh, this sense. And of course we know God is not sleeping, but that he is. And so here is God in person. And what's he doing when they're in the midst of their stormy sleeping? And, and, and yet they, they can come to discover that because of who he is, they had nothing to fear. So that I think brings us to, to a, a truth about prayer that's vital. But then when you see at the end this contrast, I think it highlights what's the real danger, the urgent matter for prayer. I, I'm not, I certainly don't want to take away from the urgency of our, our crises. Um, right. But what we feel is urgent and what God feels is urgent may be often right. different things. Yeah, it made me pause and think there are times where I wonder if... It, not to say we shouldn't always pray in all situations on some level, but there is a time where it's more of a a reflex. It looks like more of a reflex when it's something that we now perceive is beyond our control, not realizing how mastered we are by these temptations. I think it's like C.S. Lewis who said, the man who never resisted temptation, uh, never tried to resist a temptation, right. doesn't know how hard it is. Right, exactly. The depth of that insight there, I think, is sort of what that putting those two stories side by side brought out for me was, right, when you don't resist temptation in prayer, you don't have a reflex to do it. Right. You do have, you're a human, you see your own frailty, you do have a, a, a reflex to cry out to a higher power when there's something that you clearly perceive as beyond your control. Right, right. And, and yet, interestingly, in the Lord's Prayer, which is the prayer the Lord taught us to pray, we don't have, you know, uh, in there specifically, you know, Lord, keep us from the storms of life. But we do have, Lord, uh, lead me not into temptation, deliver me from the evil one or evil. And, and, and yes, that can include those evil occurrences in our life. But I think the intent there is also the evil one's strategies and plans for our lives, which right. we don't perceive. And right. yet he puts them on our daily prayer list right there. Yeah, so that was, uh, I really appreciated that because you brought that out that it was, Paul knew it's chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. He says, yes, I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for, for my deliverance. And you could lump this in the storm category here he is he's imprisoned he's awaiting trial of course everyone knows there's an eminent there's a there's a potential for danger and so prayers people will be inclined to pray uh in that sort of situation also but it was important to me to think if the only time my reflex is to pray is when i feel like i can see right how it would work then mm. i've missed I've missed the more important moments right. when I probably needed to be praying. Right. Another comparison you made in the second sermon that spills over into the third sermon tightly about uh, was the idea, because um, in the third sermon you talk about costly unity, and it, the second one was surprising God, mm -hmm. if I'm remembering correctly. Correct. And so as you end the, the second sermon, you start talking about Paul saying that if I am uh, to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. 
yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Verse 23 of chapter 1. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. You made the point that in our society, it's often considered a bad thought process or a bad motive to stay in a job, career, situation based on a sense of duty or responsibility um, for some other party that that's looked down on as seeking some lower goal. You're not living up to what you could be doing or something like that, that ideas of performance based on duty or obligation are considered lesser somehow. Right. Um, Not a lot of value culturally to that. And Paul seems to be making the point that his responsibility or sense of duty to the Jesus followers in Philippi and elsewhere motivates him to do what he considers less favorable, less preferable, which is to remain in prison, remain alive, continue to do this, um, this work of the ministry, whatever that, whatever that costs him, whatever it takes. And of course we know that it cost him a lot. I mean, he suffered a lot because of that. Yes, certainly. How does that work out for me in my job? Let's say not my job. I'm just thinking of the average person. If I go to a job that I don't like, am I suffering for Jesus? And so I shouldn't pursue something I love if I'm going to this job just to pay bills, to put food on the table, shouldn't I pr- find something that I can pay the bills and love? I'm just, because it sounds like an intersection of, again, sort of controlling narratives. Well, exactly. And how do I, if I'm in one of those positions, if I'm stuck in this, or I feel obligated to do this for others' sake, even though I feel like I could be enjoying something more how how does that flesh out right well i think this is a good illustration that text in chapter one that you mentioned of what it means to be a controlling narrative for paul you know looks at what's better for him what's better for them and he makes a decision i think based in what christ did in humbling himself for us to say now i know i'm convinced i'm going to do what's better for you so it controlled his life he conformed himself to that um and 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 so what do you what do you do and i i can speak to my own life i from an early age had a very strong sense that i was called to preach and um unfortunately i didn't have a lot of wisdom nor did i have a lot of uh, people in my life that were speaking into my life there was really nobody that was speaking into my life um and spiritually etc. And, and so I had supportive parents, but there's, that's different than having parents who are saying, no, you should do this versus that. Uh, very supportive, and I'm grateful for that. But I found myself preaching at 17 and, and planting a church just before I turned 19, uh, which I don't recommend either doing or going to a church so planted uh, in, that, in that moment. But um, that is what I did. So I'm just dealing with the facts here. And then after <laughs> 10 years and, and a lot of me going to the cross, and, 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 and the Lord working in me, uh, I determined that the, it was the Lord's will for me to go be a regular Christian and, 
though my desire for ministry had not changed one lick, if anything, it had increased. I knew that it was time for me to be a Christian, to serve my family, provide for my children, and to trust that if he wants me in ministry, he will put me there. So that began a, an eight-year period of my life where I went to work, you know, day in and day out, not doing what I wanted to do, knowing that it wasn't what I was made to do. It's not that I hated my job. I, you know, as jobs go, I enjoyed the job. It, um, it, it was fine. And it certainly provided well for my family. I mean, it, it would later become a, a test for me when I was had the opportunity to go back into ministry. Am I willing to lay it down? You know, do you love, do you, do you love me? Uh, or do you love the, these fish more than me was more or less the conversation that, that I was having with the Lord at that moment. And, and, and so uh, for me, it was knowing that I am serving my family. I'm being faithful to my wife. I'm being faithful to provide for my children. I'm demonstrating for them the what it means to be have a father with integrity so that they can grow up and 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 recognize that um i've known i've known men who would not take jobs that would provide for their families because they just didn't like the work so instead they would do these things they really liked but they were not able to get paid you know at best minimum wage and and sometimes less than that uh it was more of a hobby than a job because they really enjoyed it but their families were suffering. I, I see no honor in that. Now, there's certainly nothing wrong with being able to accomplish both at the same time. I think that goes back to what Paul said, you know, if, if you're a slave and you have the opportunity to be free, great. Uh, but don't run away, in effect. Don't, don't put yourself in a position. You be faithful to God in that situation that you're in. Speaking in that Roman world and in that context and their situation. And, and so... I would put this, um, as it were, career path for the sake of duty in that category of being diligent and faithful where God has us. And if he gives us opportunity to improve that, that will still accomplish our faithfulness, then great, go for it. But we should not be leaving what is clearly uh, a, a means by of faithful obedience to God and serving of others for the sake of what we want to do versus what we don't particularly enjoy. Does that clear yeah. that up a little yeah, bit? Yeah, I, I think it does. Here's what I think is a common narrative that folks in the United States have, folks who are Christians even have, is if I can't do the job that I love, that means God must not be leading me to do this. Or I, I'm not being blessed right now. We could couch it in those terms. Being blessed by God, being shown favor, means I get to do the thing that I feel most called to do, and I excel at it, and everyone thinks I'm amazing. Yeah. And, and that, that is an American gospel, is it not? So how does that—what's what, wrong with those thought processes there? What am I missing? Yeah, maybe I would say it this way. It certainly was not how Jesus thought. As we look at him in the garden, Lord, Father— if, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And, and so we think that being in God's will is usually equated with, and I think this goes to what you were saying, being in our will. And, and yet, ironically, <sighs> that does not really appear to be the case. Right. Uh, rather, being in our will might frequently be at odds with being in God's will. And so our 
happiness, if we think of happiness as we get to do what we like, uh, is not really of great interest to God. But our good is of great interest to him, and our good is his will, not ours. And, and so uh, if we're seeking happiness, we'll usually end up in a bad place. But if we're seeking God's will and good, we'll, these other things will be added that we're not seeking. There are times where if you read Paul's, when, when Ananias in Acts, when Ananias comes and says, Brother Saul, the Lord has sent me to tell you. And it sounds great, like all the, you're going to talk to kings, uh, Jesus says, he, or it's when Jesus appears to Ananias and says, here, go, don't be afraid. Um, you're going to tell him all the kings he's going to talk to. And it sounds like a great resume. <laughs> and then it ends with, <laughs> and all the things he's going to suffer for my name. Yeah, like, and, what? And you went, oh, yeah. that uh, job description sounded great right up to this point. And so there were points, and as you read Acts, here he is bobbing in the water. I have a close friend who told me once, uh, he was reading through Acts, and he thought, I bet this was not what Paul thought this would look like, bobbing in the water for several days in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea while his captors, his, uh, you know, the we would call them police, but the Roman soldiers who were had custody of him as he was being transported to Rome— they're, they're afraid of dying. They're ready to kill all the prisoners. And he's like, wait, no, no, it, it'll work out. But then they wind up shipwrecked, and he's floating in the water for nights and just all so sorts of things. What does he things. mean by worked out? And, you know? and, yeah, yeah. and it's like, wait, I was supposed to see kings and speak to princes to tell them the gospel of, of Jesus, uh, and I'm floating in the sea in the right. dark, right? praying not to drown, those sorts of things. So... The job description probably didn't, if you left out that last sentence. It wouldn't quite fit. And another verse in Acts that has always bothered me is later in Acts, Paul tells, and I forget the particular audience off the top of my head, but he, that he tells them that it is through, uh, you know, much suffering that we must enter, or tribulation we must enter the kingdom of God. Right. And, and it's like, wait a second, I thought that was only for you. <laughs> and all of a sudden it's for me too. Um, because I drew the connection, of course, as a, even as a young person looking at, that verse, then back to Paul, what Ananias was told to tell Paul mm-hmm. from Jesus. And, and it's like, okay, so it's not just Paul that gets to suffer. Um, and, and so we're called to it too. Now, obviously, I think Paul was, Paul suffered at a level that most of us won't. Right. Um, you know, maybe that explains why he had visions of Jesus and was put into third heaven. When, when people tell me they want to have visions, I'm wondering if they're willing to do the suffering that might come with that, you know. Well, my, I brought all, all that up, and that's parallel is that it isn't necessarily that if I'm having to do a work that is unpleasant, it, it, it may just be that that actually is God's blessing or the route it takes for me to be where His um, job description for me is. Right. And, and I, don't get, I don't get to be in Rome talking to in Caesar, you know, to see him face to face or to be with the Praetorians like you bring up in. I don't get there unless I spend several nights bobbing in the water uh, in a shipwreck like those things are part of it. And in in many ways, they prepare me. And I think you make um, a point in that same second sermon in the series about suffering being God's designed tool for 
getting us to be the type of people we need to be. I think the author of Hebrews says that Jesus was made complete right. in his human experience through the things he suffered. Right. Yeah, that that's an amazing verse. And, and, and we, too, will be made mature, if I can use that term mm-hmm. for us, uh, and complete in him right. when we join in his sufferings. Right. Um, and, and, and honestly, I hate saying things like that because I wish they weren't true, but they are. And the more I, I walk with the Lord, the more I realize that not only are they true, they're a significant portion of our New Testament speak about this. It may not be true in our churches that we speak as much about it, but it is in the New Testament. And so if we want New Testament churches at some point, we've got to begin to speak more about it well, in those churches. I'm glad you brought that up because that was sort of my final question is, uh, since he's talking to a church, a group of Jesus followers, and he's and he's trying to drive home this sort of thinking to them, bearing up under suffering, I infer that he means largely from the outside, from outside the church, that there's going to be suffering imposed on you by spiritual darkness, powers of darkness. You make the point about how in in a lot of respects those are reflections parallel with the political powers or entities of their days. Mm-hmm. And so but that's external pushing down on the church of uh, the the followers of Jesus as a community. How does it for me as a as a member of a Jesus following community? How does that that idea of suffering work out within the community? Shouldn't I be? I don't just stand there and take it, right? When I, I'm, or at least I'm thinking for the average person here. Here I have this brother or sister who who says they're a fellow Christian. I'm in the community. Should I be looking for suffering within the walls? Well, I I think indeed that there will be suffering within the walls. I think Paul gets there by chapter four when he's tar- talking to Yodia and Syntyche, how they need to reconcile. But but in order for me to reconcile with somebody within the walls, as, as you put it, it it's going to mean that I'm going to have to forgive. And forgiveness means that I bear their wrong and I don't heap it back on them. I don't retaliate. I don't take vengeance. And Jesus suffered to forgive us. And I would argue that all forgiveness, all forbearance, requires an element of suffering. Uh, likewise, in addition to that, within the walls, we're called, and this is a whole other sermon, so I won't spend much time here, but... <laughs> yes, we're running, we're running out of minutes. Yeah, one that I would like to, to do sometime, <laughs> but you, you look at the story of, of, uh, of the poor in Luke, and then you get to the book of Acts, and, and you see the poor in the beginning, but then all of a sudden their needs are met, and they just disappear from the discussion. And the idea and the picture is that, that, that in the church there are no longer any poor. But why? I think the why, the answer to the why question is because the people in the church are making up those needs, that there is no lack within the body of Christ because they didn't consider their possessions their own. In America, that's suffering. <laughs> that's serious suffering in America. It's, that, that gets to the old Mark Twain statement. It ain't the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that you know, concern me. It's the parts that I do understand. And that, that, you know, that, that, that one is one of those where it's not, it's not that it's not practical. It's totally impractical as an American, but it's, it's practical in the sense that you know exactly what you're supposed to do. It doesn't take any instruction. It's just that we don't want to do it. Right. Because it means that I don't, 
I mean, it's not so much even that I suffer, it's that I don't get the uh, personal comforts that I would otherwise have, which to us as Americans is suffering. And, and so, yeah, I, I do think there's a suffering for everybody, but it's in, it, it boils down to that choosing to be obedient, even unto the point of fill in the blank for Jesus' death, but even unto the point of denying ourselves comforts for the sake of others. That's great. And that's love. That, that's love. That's really what this letter is about, is love. Awesome. You might not see the word everywhere, but it's all about that.